we are very excited to be uh, moving into our Christmas series. And, uh, and I wanted to reflect on Christmas in Canada. I wanted to reflect on what is it, what is it like? What has it been like historically? And so today we're going to dig into a little bit of the history of Christmas in Canada, what it looked like. I'm going to paint a couple pictures for us today. And, uh, and we're going to be looking at Isaiah 45, verses 20 to 25. And those verses are going to come out at the end or towards the end, and you'll understand why. Um, it's just a really important thing. As I was considering Christmas, and I was, being, I was involved in you know, lots of different Christmas discussions, um, both with the church and also with the school that my kids go to, I, I started realizing that Christmas is many different things to people. We were out last night with, uh, with a friend of ours, or actually a couple friends of ours, and they were, they were talking about how Christmas, uh, they do an Advent. They do an Advent dinner every, every Sunday with family, and, or with family and friends, and they're the same family and friends every Sunday for five Sundays in a row. And then they went, but none of us know what Advent is. <laughs> and I just thought that was that perfect for exactly what what's happening in our culture. There, we've got these traditions, and and it was like, you know, she was just like, and we don't know what Advent is, so we call it the five family meetings of Christmas, because that's what we do. And uh, and I just thought that was really interesting, and the story of Christmas in Canada today. So, um, yeah, let me let me pray, and then we'll uh, we'll we'll get right back in. God, I, I thank you that you have come, as we've reflected on all morning, that you have come and you have been a part of this world, that you, that you put on flesh and bone and you lived life and you breathed and you spoke and you cried and you laughed. God, I thank you that, that you indeed have come, that you are the promise, that you are the fulfillment of the promises that were given in days of old. And Jesus, today as we, as we look at Christmas in the late 1700s, God, I pray that you would allow us to see what you need us to see today about why we do Christmas and how Christmas and what parts of Christmas are Christian and how we can, can take part in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So looking back on a Christmas in Canada in 1791, we find that Christians had assembled together, and we are the Christian survivors of the nations. You're going to understand that as, as we go along. A longhouse in southern Ontario, smoke hanging lightly in the air, illuminated by the fire itself, as the smoke ascends towards the holes built into the roof, to allow it to escape. The room itself is more spacious than, some, than one would have expected, with the walls serving as storage for fur and the rafters being used as a drying rack for spices and wheat and other grasses. The room feels like there's nothing outside of the walls as the atmosphere is made thick with the fire, the smoke, and the sounds of voices talking in the room. It was surprising how the central fire kept the entire room warm. 
and how much light was filling the room. The sound of the fire was dampening the other sounds. So there was a sense of privacy in the openness of the longhouse. There were benches that were put around the fire, and each bench had a blanket on it, and the people gathered around to hear from the visitors. Translation in those days is hard, but there'd already been an established common trade language by the use of hand gestures, and verbal language was being learned by everybody as time went on. In this longhouse, the conversation was peaceful. There was no trading happening this night because it was Christmas night. The Jesuit priests were here to learn and to teach. And the Huron tribe people were also interested in learning and teaching. Some of the first Christmases in Canada were celebrated with a genuine curiosity from both the natives and the priests of the day. There was an early hope in the days of the pioneers that the natives would come to believe in the good news that, that Christianity brought with it. But there was also a willingness to learn about the ways of the natives. If not the religious ways, definitely the ways of a survival. The natives were motivated to build relationships. They were motivated by the new technology that the explorers brought with them. So that day, the Jesuit priests who visited the Huron natives were dressed in stark clothing. They wore only black, with hats and a tight belt around their waist that stopped their hands from raising above their head. It was pretty impractical, but it was also very intentional because it was to honor their vow of poverty. In keeping with that vow, the vow restricts them from doing work. And so, too, their clothing restricted them from doing work. And so they, they were also chaste. They never sought to marry or to take a woman. They brought gifts that day. And it wasn't for trade, but because they were charitable people. And they were welcomed. They brought good things, and they taught the natives about Christmas. Not all Christmas in Canada was as missionary-focused as this picture was. Christmas in Canada came with the Europeans for sure. But as, Chris, as the Christians came from Europe, they built churches quickly, and th they made their churches and their places of worship ring with Christmas bells as early as they were constructed. So we have another story, a story of an early Christmas um, that Lady Simcoe experienced, the same Lady Simcoe that this region is named after. Um, well, it's named after Lord Simcoe, um, but at the same Simcoe, which this region is named after. Lady Simcoe kept her own diary. We have a copy of it today, and in it she writes her first Christmas in Canada, which was 1791. Lady Simcoe had come down by boat into the, uh, through the St. Lawrence waterway and was just west of Montreal. She doesn't specify exactly where she was. She reflects that the native people would shoot sheep and elk for the Europeans and gift it to them so that they could enjoy their feasts. They also, the, the natives, taught the Europeans how to hang their chicken in a specific way um, to keep uh, to freeze it through the winter months, keeping more of the juices inside the meat. And the Europeans were very happy to learn that. See, she herself was uh, affluent. She makes sure that in her diary she shows 
her affluence. She shows that uh, she's dining with princes and with the educated people. She clearly shows that she longs for Europe. As her diary continues to compare everything to the way it was back home. And what I found very stunning and insightful to hear was the perception that the Christmas, or sorry, uh, was her perception of, cr of the Christmas celebration in the place called Cathedral Church. She doesn't give it any other name, it's just Cathedral Church. She attended on December 25th to see the service that illuminated the altar. This is a big thing back home, the illumination of the altar. Um, we have to remember that we're, we're pre-electricity. And so they're using hundreds of candles to illuminate the artistry and, and the work. Um, and so she attended on December 25th, and she loved it. She thought it was wonderful back home. But in Canada, her diary shows that a certain cynicism had come upon her. While she reflects that she was well-dressed, the event itself seemed to underwhelm her as though something had been lost. It may have been that the fact that the cathedral was freezing cold. She says that the Catholics would not admit any fires in the cathedral at all because it could damage the beautiful painting. At the end of her reflection for Christmas Day, she writes, I saw no such beautiful paintings. And so... This is what she experienced. She experienced the cynicism that it wasn't quite what it could have been. It wasn't quite what it should have been. It wasn't quite like it was. So today I want to ask the question, what makes Christmas Christian? These two picture, pictures of Christmas in the late 1700s remind me of Christmas today, except for we have electricity now, and we have heat without smoke. And it begs the question to me, what makes us Christian today in our, in our Christmas celebration? I see a clear distinction in our culture about how we celebrate this very old human tradition and what we believe at is at the center of this human tradition. It's recorded back in history as far as we can travel. Human celebrations around the time of year between harvest and seed time. It's a time when preparations need to be made and celebrations about the successful year behind. This was common in uh, even ancient Europe and ancient Near Eastern religions where, where they would gather and they would offer sacrifices and they would have feasts and they would gather because the story was, was one of this is the darkest time of year. And we're going to get into that more next week. But it's a time when, this, when preparations need to be made and celebrations about the successful year behind. But what we value and what we celebrate at Christmas time is very telling about what we believe is most important in the narrative of our life. What we value and what we celebrate at Christmas time is telling of what we believe is the most important narrative in our life. And that's true for all people. We bring together our greatest celebration of the year and, and we celebrate what's most important to what we believe is most important. And so we see diversity in it. As time continued, the story of Jesus being born took central role in what is the narrative of Christmas. It was actually 
in the fourth century. It was 400 years after, or over 400 years after Jesus had, had come and died, that the European culture starts to reflect what's most important in it. And they said December 25th would be when we celebrate the birth of a Savior. Come, let us worship and adore him, they said, Christ the Lord. In our Christian ideals, we think of a time when Jesus was the sole purpose for Christmas. But I think, as I've been studying this over the past month, that we idealize too much. I think that Jesus was actually never the sole purpose for Christmas. I think Jesus became the highest value that Christians hold at this time, at this celebration. Jesus is the one that we say, this is the highest value. Jesus is the highest value. Because Christmas existed in ways and shapes and forms well before. Well before. And so, Lady Simcoe reminds us even then that sometimes we compare it and say, oh, if only it were as good as it had been. Once, one day, it was way better back then. I remember back in my childhood when Christmas used to mean something, and now it seems to be trite and meaningless. Now it seems to be so full of other things, and, and, and we need to understand. Lady Simcoe realized in Canada that Christmas just didn't do it for us, for her. The cold became too biting. The decorations weren't as good. And the ceremony itself fell to cynicism. But what's important remained. What's important does remain. Every year I hear perennial Christian fear that Christmas is losing its meaning and being consumed by, consum being consumed by consumerism. Yet society, society is just reflecting its values. That's what's happening. Society is simply reflecting what is most important to it right now, where it thinks it is going to be saved. And so as Christians, we reflect our values, and we say there is a Christian Christmas, and it's different from a secular Christmas. Now, we're going to go into Isaiah 45. I wanted to tell you those stories before we got into the Scripture because I needed to set the, the, the stage for us where, where we have this kind of twofold perception. The one is that we have this message that's really important, but language stops us. And the other one is that we have this, this, this idea that, oh, if it was only as good as it used to be, if it was only as, as, as true and as pure as it used to be. And I would say that, that the people of God have experienced this for a very long time. This text is not a Christmas text. Usually. This is a text to, written by Isaiah to a people who were, they were definitely finding themselves in a place that, that they were spread out. They had been defeated. They had been, God says in early, uh, or Isaiah says in early chapter 45, he says that, that he is going to use other nations to to destroy and to bring down Israel. And so Israel is in this point of being, of being weak, of being spread apart, of being hoping for, for the reunification of Israel. And so they're, they're out there longing for days of old and having a message that they didn't know how to communicate. And so Isaiah 45 
gives us this text, and I'm going to I'm going to read it, and it's going to come up on the screen. It says, in starting in verse 20, assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told you this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that will not return to me. Every knee will bow, and every tongue swear, will swear allegiance. Only in the Lord shall it be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him all shall come and be ashamed, all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So this, ten this verse here gives us, gives us a look into the tension that we feel in the stories of history we place ourselves in. We feel in so many ways that today we're missionaries and cynics brought together in a world that's driving us away from the true meaning of, Christ of Christmas. This passage gives us a lens to see that the struggle's been existing for God's people for all time. When we live with affluence, we tend to think of the, Christ of the Christmas traditions as being beautiful and programmed, and they should measure up to a certain standard and perform a certain structure. The way Lady Simcoe compared everything to back home, we sometimes think of Christmas being done right, and we mourn or we miss the grandeur, the beauty of Christmas of old. We're, nos we're nostalgic, and we hope that one day it can actually reflect its proper meaning. When we see other traditions around us, we sense that our story is the story that should be shared. Isaiah 45, assemble together, and there is no other Savior but me, says God. And so we sense that our, that our story should be shared, but how do we share it when the language and values block us? How do we get involved in that context when, when the values of our world are shaped so differently than the values that we hold at Christmas? And so God, God shows us and says, and says, I will draw all people. So Isaiah 45, 14 earlier just shows us a little bit of the consumerism. It says, thus saith the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over you and be yours and they will follow you. And we've got this idea that, that the wealthy will actually see that there's a value that's beyond, a value that's stronger, that says, no, there's something greater than just the emptiness of our Christmas traditions without the story of God. Our Christmas traditions that just give gifts and just give, give you know, come together for Sunday celebration meals with friends. That there's something more that actually roots us and ties us into a grander narrative. And that's so important for us. We assemble together as, missionary, as missionaries and we worship. We are the survivors 
of the nations, as verse 20 says. We are the survivors of the nations, a very diverse world that celebrates a lot of things at this time. The, uh, the South Simcoe District School Board reminds me very carefully that in December, there are 37 different religious celebrations that happen. 37 different religious celebrations that happen in this community. We are the survivors of the nations that carry the story of God. We know it and we love it and we say that indeed Jesus is God. He came to be with us. And so we find ourselves assembling together. We assemble together. So the Christian church gathers around. It's a church that, that where we remind ourselves of who is the Lord and there is no other. And we set resolutely in our knowledge of the truth that Jesus is our is the incarnated God who came to save us from the plague and the curse against humanity, who came to sympathize with our weaknesses and show mercy in our time of need. We gather not to create the greatest programs or be contrarian to culture, but to remind ourselves that God is a righteous Savior, and we see that in verse 21. For the Jews of Isaiah's day, it was about retaining their identity, and there's an element that, of that truth in us. That when we gather here on Sunday, we retain our identity. This is who we are in the story that God has involved himself in. When we allow ourselves to be isolated from our community and we go, oh, church isn't that important. I don't need to go. It's not that valuable. We actually assume the values of the culture around us by default. We become more and more like the culture around us. And when we as, as Isaiah endorses, assemble ourselves together and come and draw near together, we, we make sure that we retain our identity among the nations. It was about taking care to remember in a very disbelieving world that God is God and there is no other. It's a gathering of hope. This God says in verse 23, to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. And, and we see one of the oldest church hymns given to us in Philippians chapter 2. It says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any, any affection or sympathy. Complete my joy by being in the same mind, having the same love, being full in accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant to yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Now here's the hymn, the old, oldest Christian hymn that we have. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He gave himself by taking on the form of, his, of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, as we reflected on earlier today. Therefore, God has, ex has highly exalted him, and bestowed upon him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Verse 23, to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. We see that Jesus is the, is the culmination of the promise. We see that, that here we have this old hymn pulling from this verse saying, assemble yourselves together, remember your identity, know that I am God and that I will call all people to me. The missionary work that we have as survivors of the nations, we know that God is good, and we find ways to communicate that God is good. We're given, we're given the privilege of telling people that we have a significant claim to what God is doing, and we are inviting them to be a part of it. We're inviting them to be a part of it. We assemble and invite others to assemble in the name of God.